Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'm excited to kick off this week's episode by announcing the winners of our second-ever Flash Fiction Contest. We had an amazing response to the contest this go-around, with more than 80 entries, including some very familiar names, as well as many we heard from for the first time. And let me tell you, It was no small task narrowing them down. A huge thank you goes out to Meredith Morgenstern for not only wrangling a lot of the contest, but keeping us on track to get stories reviewed and winners picked. Out of the huge selection of amazing stories, we've selected one winner and four runners-up, which we'll air on an upcoming episode. So, without further ado, I'm thrilled to announce that the winner of our Flash Fiction Contest is a little bite-sized morbid morsel from author T.F. Ahmad, titled A Short Letter from Nazir Farouk to His Friend Sir Christopher Collins. We've heard from T.F. before, but on the other end of the mic as a narrator on episodes 400 and 410. We're thrilled to have your story on the show, T.F., Congratulations, and thanks for submitting. Rounding out our winner's selection are four runners-up. The Nightmare Boy from James Canis, Christy Nogle's Viridian Green, Carrie Lee Grady's The Nightmare She Wears, and something a little different, a poem by Amy Sampson Cutler titled My Dead Girl. Congratulations to all of you, and thanks again to everyone who entered. If you want a refresher on the inspiration for this contest, I've left the image up at talestoterrify.com slash flashfiction, where you'll also be able to take another look at the list of winners. We're excited to produce these tiny terrors for you, children of the night, and we'll be shopping the stories to our narrator soon. I'll let you know once I've got a better idea of when you can expect the Flash Contest episode to hit your ears. Right now, it looks likely that'll be sometime later in the spring. But don't rest your writing hand just yet. Our search for horrifying fiction doesn't end with the conclusion of our contest. 
No, we're just a week away from fully opening for submissions. That includes works up to 10,000 words. And, as I mentioned last week, we'll be keeping an eye out for works horrifying enough to feature on our landmark 500th episode, coming up later this summer. If you want to prepare yourself, head over to talestoterrify.com slash submissions for all of the details on what we're looking for and how to submit. The portal opens April 1st. No April Fool's joke. I promise. Before we move on, I'd like to give a shout-out to a few listeners who've taken the time to review us on Apple Podcasts. A huge thank you to Once Upon a Fan and Adam 191585 for sharing your love of the podcast. It's been so amazing to hear the feedback lately, and we appreciate it so much. It's great to know there are dark and twisted minds out there that enjoy what we do enough to share their thoughts with others, or even support the show. So, if you've got something to say, Children of the Night, we'd love to hear your reviews. And if you have the means and inclination to support us, you can do that over at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. This week, we've got a short stopover in the city of Woodstock in southern Ontario. The community might seem like an unlikely place to attract the attention of a paper like the New York Times. But back in January of 1886, it did just that. And not for a very pleasant reason. The girl had died suddenly. Unexpectedly. It's not entirely clear what led to her death, but in the growing young community of Woodstock, it had a pretty significant impact. She had been young, after all, not even old enough to be called a young woman yet. Her family, the Collins family, were understandably beside themselves, and the whole community seemed to weep with them. So youthful and full of promise they said. Such a shame. So heartbreaking for the family. A community of just a few thousand people, Woodstock was a tight-knit hub that brought together people from surrounding farms to trade and socialize. So, when tragedy struck, they banded together to support each other. Her funeral was arranged quickly. A plot set aside and grave dug in the local cemetery. There was no embalming before burial back then, no autopsies or preparation of the body before it went in the ground. The girl's remains were lovingly cared for, though. She was gently washed, her hair cleaned, brushed and neatly braided. She was then wrapped in a bright white linen shroud, tied meticulously with ribbon, then placed in her wooden casket. The funeral service was short. Solemn, soft-spoken hymns and scripture, broken by the occasional heart-wrenching wail of the girl's mother. And then it was over. The coffin was lowered in the earth, and the hole was filled with soil. And for the most part, the community moved on. But for a family who had just lost their child, it was only the beginning. Everything reminded them of her, from the soft glow of sunrise glinting rainbows off the morning dew, to gentle cricket song that rose with the light of the moon. And quickly, the loss felt too much to bear. There was too much memory there, too much sorrow and heartbreak. They needed to move on, not from their daughter, but from their community. The looks of pity and sadness, and the constant reminders of what they lost. But even if her body was just a husk, they couldn't stand the thought of leaving their daughter behind. So, mere weeks after they had put their beloved daughter in the ground, the family had her exhumed. 
her grave once again dug up, and the coffin carefully raised back to the surface. A decision, it turns out, that was more haunting, more painful, than anything they had suffered in the wake of their daughter's death. When the lid of the coffin was pried open, the gruesome scene inside sent shockwaves of fear, sorrow, and disbelief through everyone in attendance. The crisp white burial shroud was torn to shreds and spotted with blood. The inside of the coffin lid bore scratches from now bloodied and fractured fingernails. The girl's corpse was twisted and contorted within the coffin, wedged in an awkward fetal position, with her knees pulled up tight beneath her chin, one arm twisted below her head. And her face, oh, her face, the look would haunt the darkest hours of all those who saw. An expression of sheer, soul-wrenching terror and desperation. The girl had been buried alive. Being mistakenly buried alive is something that still ranks near the top of many people's all-time worst fears. And in the late 1800s, it was unfortunately much higher of a possibility. Medical science, after all, hadn't yet evolved to the point where there was a clear and conclusive checklist for how to verify a patient was deceased. Things like comas and catatonic states weren't always recognized conditions, and that could result in the most terrifying of misdiagnoses. In 1905, not many years after the incident with the Collins girl, an English reformer named William Tebb collected accounts of premature burial. In his home country, he found 219 cases of near-live burial, 149 actual live burials, 10 cases of live dissection, and 2 cases of awakening while being embalmed. I'm honestly not sure which of those is worse. The fear of being buried alive led to advances in burial practices, like so-called safety coffins, which you might have heard of before. Coffins with a breathing tube and a string attached to a bell on the surface so the non-dead inhabitants could conceivably ring the bell if they woke up six feet under. Of course, medicine of today has come a long way. It seems almost hard to conceive, but back in those days, it wasn't even known yet that you could bring someone back from drowning. If you inhaled water and stopped breathing, that was it. You were dead. No questions asked. Now, though, thanks to advances like CPR and defibrillation, we're capable of bringing people back from the edge of death, or even beyond. I even read, and this seems crazy to me, if you drown in cold water, a recent study says it can be possible to be resuscitated as long as two hours after your heart stops beating. That seems insane. So, premature burial, it's a thing of the past, right? With the incredible amount of medical technology at our fingertips, it shouldn't be possible to mistake a condition as unequivocal as death, right? So you'd think. But there have been at least a handful of notable incidents in the last 20 years. In 2001, a body bag arrived at a funeral home in Ashland, Massachusetts, with a living occupant inside. Fortunately, they were discovered to be alive before any embalming or burial could take place. Then, in 2014, there were two accounts in the same year in Greece of women being accidentally buried alive. Each time, the women were heard screaming from beneath the earth by people nearby. In one case, it was the family, 
In another, it was children and a nearby playground. But each time, by the time the graves were opened, the women were truly deceased. So, I don't know about you, but after hearing these truly terrifying tales, I feel like the fire and finality of a good old-fashioned cremation sounds awfully inviting. Time to update the old will, I guess. And on that cheerful note, let's hear some fiction. We have another triple header for you this week, children of the night. First up is a tale from Christopher Cosmos. Christopher Cosmos is a best-selling author and blacklist screenwriter from Grand Rapids, Michigan, whose debut novel, Once We Were Here, is now available from Arcade Publishing. He's also a graduate of the University of Michigan and recipient of a Chick Evans Scholarship. More info about him and his work can be found at ChristopherCosmos.com or by following him on Twitter at ChristosCosmos and Instagram at ChristopherCosmos. Links, of course, are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Christopher Cosmos's Rakshasa, a Tales to Terrify original. If I decide you'll be mine, then you will be. Sometimes it's easy and as simple as that. You see, I'll be older than you because I'm older than everything. I'm older than the rocks and the trees, the rivers and the mountains, the sun and the moon, the wind and the stars. I was born when time was still young and when you were still young too or at least those that came before you and whose blood and fate and destiny that you share. And if I do choose you, know that it's because you're beautiful. I'm not talking about body and flesh, either. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about soul. The battle that I've been fighting has been one that began before time, and so if I choose you, Consider it a great honor to take your place alongside those that came before. Consider it the greatest honor of your life to be chosen by one who has seen everything. Gods and heroes roaming this earth, battles and cities that are no longer remembered, Dravidians, Vedans, Persians, a golden conqueror from the west, Morayans, Vasco da Gama, the light-skinned British. I've seen all of that. I've lived through all those times and amongst all those people, and I've now chosen you. Listen closely if you want to know how it will happen, because if you're chosen, then this is what I'll do. I'll come when you're most vulnerable. I won't come when you're young, when everyone thinks that you'd be the most susceptible, because you're really not. When you're young, you won't have had yet the type of sadness and doubt that I look for, the type that I feed on. Instead, I'll come when you're older, let's say when you're 34, maybe a year before, maybe a year after, I don't know. And it'll be when you're having dinner with your boyfriend of five years at Highlands, on the 71st floor of the Renaissance Center. On the way home, as you drive through the snow that will lightly fall around your car, he'll break up with you. It'll be for no apparent reason at all. You'll cry. You'll think about all the time you wasted with him, and how wasted time for him isn't the same as wasted time for you. And then you'll call your mother for the first time in too long. It's 11 p.m. in Detroit, which means it's 8.30 a.m. in Mumbai. Why do they have that 30-minute difference again? It doesn't matter. She'll hear you crying. You'll tell her what happened 
She'll say that it's almost Christmas in the United States, so you must have some time off work coming up. And why don't you come home? You'll shake your head and tell her no, because it's habit. Because it's what you always do. But then you'll realize that this time it's different. You realize that you want and need to see your mother. And so you'll book a ticket, and you'll go. You'll arrive at Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj International Airport, and your father will be there to pick you up. You'll see the colors again as you drive home with him. You'll hear all the noises, see all the people, your people. You'll feel the streets of the city where you were born and raised, and it will mean more to you than you thought it would. All of these things you've forgotten since you left for college. You'll get to your house, and you'll hug your mother, and then go upstairs and put your things in your childhood bedroom, and it won't be long until your parents tell you that they've talked to one of their friends, and there's someone that they want you to meet. Oh no, you say, as you roll your eyes. But they'll persist, and so you'll go. You'll meet him at a restaurant that he chooses, one that you've never heard of because you haven't been to Mumbai in too long. And when he shows up, you'll be surprised at how he looks because he'll be beautiful. Not in a traditional way, perhaps, but in a way that's appealing to you. He'll tell you that he splits his time between Mumbai, London, and New York, and how he had recently been in finance but he stepped back to get into investing, and his new project is a restaurant that he's going to open. He'll say he doesn't know that your dream, too, to open your own restaurant with the money that you've saved since becoming a partner in your law firm on Griswold Street, but then you'll tell him. You'll go for a drink on the top of the Four Seasons with the stunning views of the city. It'll be magic. It'll be intoxicating. And it will also be the moment that a man like this, a powerful and rich and good-looking man in a perfectly tailored suit, normally invites you back to his penthouse. But this one won't. Instead, he'll let you call it your own Uber and wait with you in the lobby until it comes and you're safely inside. And then, just before you leave, he'll ask to see you again. You'll look at him, at his eyes, as he stands there, and then you'll agree. Two days later, flowers will arrive along with an invitation, and you'll get into the car that takes you to the boat which sails to Elephanta Island in the middle of Mumbai Harbor. When you get there, you'll see him waiting, and that he's rented out the whole island. You'll go to the caves. You'll stand amongst the ancient and carved columns that were sculpted by your ancestors, and by his, too, and then you'll kiss. You'll move apart. You'll look into his eyes and tell him that you've been hurt, so you want to take it slowly. And that's when it will begin. That's when I'll send the fear and the doubt and all the other things that I can send to help drive you back to me. You'll go with your mother to see Amma, the ancient healer at the Hindu shrine in the forest, and that's when you'll first hear the word the name of what I am, and she'll give you tools to protect yourself against demons like me. Will they work? They might, at least in the beginning. But there's no blessed water from Varasani, or sacred icon made of copper and carved wood, or evil eye that you can make with your hand and finger that will protect you from me, from what I can do, and from what I've learned in all my many centuries. You'll talk to your boyfriend in Detroit and realize that he didn't break up with you. Your parents will talk to their friends and realize it's not their son that you've been seeing. You see, I have many gifts and many powers. You do too. You have these powers as well. You've just forgotten, as so many of your kind have. Will you remember? Will you remember those powers that you have? And the goddess that's within you? We'll have to see. How many ancestors do you have to call upon? And will you? And will they come? That's what we'll find out when the battle for your spirit truly begins. And we'll find out if it will be my ancient and jagged teeth that sink into your skin and taste your sweet and innocent soul. 
just another in a long line of such souls that I've consumed. Or we'll find if your path will be another, and if your life can be your life once more. What's certain, though, even when it's over, it won't end. I will return, you can be certain of that, or perhaps it will be another like me. And maybe you'll recognize the signs when I do. Maybe you'll have learned from this experience if you survive it. And if you do, you'll have become wise and ancient and powerful like I am, and the battle will continue on and on, on and on, because by then you'll be ready the same as I will be. You'll be ready, and you'll know how to fight and struggle against me, you and all the others that will come after, because by then, wise as you'll have become, you'll have seen our original form, the ancient one, the one older than time, older than rock, older than tree, older than sun and moon and stars. And by then, you'll understand just what these Ra Kasashas truly are. That was Christopher Cosmos's Rakshasa, as read by our very own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story this evening comes from Sam Rebeline. Sam Rebeline is a graduate of the MFA in Creative Writing program at Goddard College. His work has previously appeared in Bourbon Pen, Planet Scum, Shimmer, Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, and elsewhere. He lives in Poughkeepsie, New York, and on Twitter as at Hillary Scruff. You can read more about his work at srebeline.com. Listen with me. Children of the Night, to Sam Rebeline's People Are Dying, a Tales to Terrify original.
The Colson farm used to sell Christmas trees. But that was before Sandy Colson cut up her husband, then ate him, and then hung herself. Then the place didn't sell anything. The Colson house was declared a landmark because of how famous the tree farm was. But nobody tended it. The workmen who were supposed to, they said they heard weird things in there at night. Sawing and snapping and laughter. They avoided the place. It grew dilapidated. The evergreens surrounding the house grew tall and twisted, unearthly. The Colson house might have been this historic landmark, sure, but we knew. We all knew it was haunted. Kids kept daring each other to go in the house and then not coming out. Melissa Donovan's son Clay and Hayden Erickson went in there one night, but only Hayden came out, crying, saying something got Melissa's kid. The police couldn't find anything in the house, and one of the officers wouldn't even go in. Clay was declared missing, but everybody knew what happened to him. Then it was the Tanger sisters, and Samara Trevor, Bill Trevor's daughter, who went in there a few days before Halloween. The Tanger sisters said something swooped down from the ceiling and gobbled up Samara. They said they'd known the place was haunted, but not that haunted. Samara was never found, but Bill still hears her crying at night through the static in the TV. This had happened a few times before. It happened a few times after. Finally, the town got together and demanded somebody tear down the Colson place. People protested outside the town hall, carrying signs and wearing t-shirts with dead kid faces on them. The place is fucking ungodly, wrote Tammy Riordan on Facebook. She was a big woman with a strong voice. She and her husband owned the bowling alley downtown. She had to yell a lot over the sound of pins. People listened to her. I've had enough of this BS. It's time to tear down the ghost house. You should make that a hashtag, said her husband. Hashtag tear down the ghost house. Don't tell me what to do, she snapped, before admitting it was actually a pretty good idea. After several days of protests and talk, the town council held a special meeting to discuss the issue concerning the Colson house. The issue is it's fucking haunted, Melissa Donovan yelled. It's killing our children. A thunder of agreement from the other parents. Many were gathered at this meeting. Many more watched the live stream at home, including Tammy Riordan. Miss Donovan, said Councilman Peters into the microphone. The Coson House has stood for nearly 80 years. It's a landmark. It's been empty for 30 of those, yelled Bill Trevor. No good to anybody. More agreement from the others. Peters looked nervously at the other councilmen. But, uh, uh, Mr. Trevor, <laughs> Bill, uh, we, I, I mean, there's no evidence that the house itself is killing folks. You can't prove the existence of... He wouldn't stoop to saying ghosts. There is no connection between these events. The house! Yelled the town. The, the house, house is, is the, the connection! connection. We can't let a few bad experiences impact the... Uh, look, it's a tourist attraction. People come from... Who? yelled Melissa Donovan. Who comes? Nobody. That house is rot. People are dying. A chorus of... Tear it down! Tear it down! Peter slid his glasses up his nose. Well, of course, we'll, uh have to review the, um, they booed him into silence. They knew, they all knew what the Colson place did. The evidence was clear as day. Tammy's husband turned to her on the couch. You should run for council, he said. Riordan 2020, tear down the ghost house. Don't tell me what to do, Tammy snapped before admitting it was actually a pretty good idea. Forget Peter's. They'd have to take care of things themselves. Tammy's campaign was uncompromising. She went door to door for months getting signatures, handing out an exhaustive number of pamphlets and hashtag tear down the ghost house buttons. In November, Peters was voted almost unanimously out of office. Swiftly, Tammy held a town vote. Again, the decision was near unanimous. The town would pay to have the Colson Evergreens uprooted and the house demolished. Everyone was thrilled. The day of, parents gathered around, standing anxiously down the Colson driveway, wondering what bodies or secrets might fall out when the house was torn down. But nothing came. 
just rubble and dead rats and a single shoe. Everyone stared at the hole in the air where the house had been, waiting for a sign, until the sunset. What should I do with the lot? Tammy asked one night over dinner. Build another alley, said her husband. Coast and lanes. Don't tell me. Actually, that's a pretty good idea. By March, Colson Lanes was up and running, neon and all. Everyone was thrilled. We love bowling. Tammy ran the town council and the lanes simultaneously. For several months, business boomed. The town prospered. People liked to listen to Tammy. But her husband. You should do this, he told her. You should do that, instructing her on the business she'd begun. You should, you should. One night, he accosted her in the kitchen as she was doing dishes. Tam, I've been thinking. You should really blah, blah, blah. She looked at him. She turned to the drying rack. She grabbed a large paring knife. Stop, hack. Telling, hack. Me, hack. So she cut up her husband, then ate him, and then hung herself. Then nobody bowled at Colson Lane's. It grew dilapidated. Evergreens sprouted anew from the blacktop of the parking lot. They grew tall and twisted, unearthly. And the people who parked in the lot to make out and smoke pot? They said they heard weird things there at night. Sawing and snapping and laughter. They avoided the property. People say lots of things about Colson Lanes. But we know. We all know. It's haunted. That was Sam Rebeline's People Are Dying, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis Robinson is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he is one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all of your podcatchers, this is not your average D&D podcast, as they focus more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy, instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign for Season 4, set in 1932 New York City. This season, they ventured into space, with more than 50 custom-created alien races. Can watch their show live, or catch up, over at twitch.tv slash botchedpodcast. I'm just a few episodes away from finishing Season 2 of Botched, and what can I say, it's been a ride, to say the least. It's like nerdy, frequently inappropriate improv comedy storytelling, and it's become my favorite new guilty pleasure. I honestly don't know how Dennis manages to keep things on track as well as he does. Head over to BotchedPodcast.com or search for it in any of your podcatchers and check it out. And thank you, Dennis. Our final story this week comes from Ariana Ferrante. Ariana Ferrante is a 23-year-old college student, playwright, and speculative fiction author. Her main interests include reading and writing fantasy and horror of all kinds, featuring heroes big and small getting into all sorts of trouble. She has been published by Erie River, Soterra Press, and Nocturnal Sirens, among others. On the playwriting side, her works have been featured in the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival and nominated for national awards. She currently lives in Florida, but travels often, both for college and leisure, when there's not a pandemic in place. You may find her on Twitter at Ariana underscore Ferrante. Listen with me, children of the night, to Ariana Ferrante's Like Hurting Cats, a Tales to Terrify original.
How hard can taking care of a cat be, really? It's a cat. No walks, no playing fetch, no stimulation needed. I probably don't even need to worry about cleaning up the thing's crap thanks to the litter box. It's only going to be here a week. Once those seven days are up, then my neighbor will come home, pay me, and take her cat back. Easy peasy. It's a small, short-haired, silver thing, covered in dark spots. The cat's name is Bestie? At least, I think it is. It could very well be something else. My neighbor told me the thing's name over the phone, but she was cutting out every other minute, and she has a thick accent. I think she's from Egypt or something? Might explain the cat's weird name, but I don't care enough to Google it. Once it's inside, Bestie leaps onto my recliner, curling up in a ball and lowering its head. I shut the door behind me and move to the chair, sighing and clicking my tongue. Uh Uh-uh, I say, reaching out and nudging the thing with my hands. Nope. Your owner might like you on her chair, but I don't. With the feeling of several prods against its body, Bestie lifts its head, bright turquoise eyes blinking owlishly at me. A short chirping sound escapes it, then it lowers its head again, tail wriggling in contentment. I give the thing another nudge, but my efforts are for naught. I'm not about to pick the cat up, either. It's bad enough the damn animal's probably getting fur all over my chair. I'm not buying a lint roller to de-shed my shirt. Or band-aids to clean up the scratches if I somehow touch it somewhere it doesn't want to be touched. Fine, I think, scoffing and walking out of the room. I can have the damn chair. As expected, it leaves me alone. It's quiet enough that I don't even remember it's here until it leaps onto my bed as I'm trying to nap. It needs its little paws against my side and I groan, looking up. Bestie meows as I stir and my eyes widen. Damn, I think, sitting up and getting to my feet. I forgot to feed it. I dart into the kitchen, Bestie at my heels. My neighbor gave me a bag of dry food to last me the week. I tear it open and fish out a cupful of small, less-than-appetizing-looking pellets. I dump it in the bowl and Bestie stuffs its face, crunching away. I grab a cup of water and fill the adjacent bowl. There. All set. I return to my bedroom and find my phone's gone off in the meantime. I pick it up, unlocking the screen. My neighbor. How's my little kitty? Is she behaving? She texts. Ah, so Bestie's a she. She's fine, I reply, gotten comfortable on my chair. Oh, I bet she feels right at home, my neighbor returns, and I can just hear the cutesy tone of her voice and the words. She doesn't text me anything else after that, and I pray she doesn't keep checking in. She's supposed to be in England or something. She should be worrying about that, not her dumb cat. I head back to bed. I wake up the next morning to the sound of Bestie meowing up a storm in the other room. I groan, wiping the sand from my eyes and going to investigate. I find her at the window, chirping and mewling as she sits perched on the windowsill. I walk up to her, looking past the windowpane to see whatever it is she's yelling at. I blink in befuddlement, gaze landing on the source of her noise. It's another cat, a fat ginger tabby, and it's sitting right outside the house. I grumble. Ugh, astray. This neighborhood's filled with them. I shut the shade, earning a meow of disapproval from Bestie as she leaps down onto the floor. No talking to strangers, I tell her, ignoring her whines. I refill her food bowl and it seems to appease her. When I come back from work, I find the ginger cat from before sitting at my door, scraping at the wood with its claws. This time, however, it's got a friend. A tiny white kitten fluffier than a cotton ball. I push past them, nudging them away from the entrance with my feet. 
The kitten tumbles and scrambles away with a squeak. But the fat ginger tabby makes sure to rake my pant leg with the lash of its claws before it retreats. I push open the door and Bestie tries to move past me. I grab her before she can place a paw outside, hurrying through the threshold and slamming the door behind me. Nope. No, bad kitty, I say, putting the squirming feline back down. Stop it! I sit down in my chair, sighing and turning on the television. My gaze flicks over to Bestie and I find her at the door, meowing and chirping away. I take the remote and crank up the volume, not stopping until I can no longer hear the cat's endless meows. Three days into the job, and when I open the door to go to work, there's five goddamn cats in the driveway. The fat ginger tabby and the tiny kitten from before are back, now joined by a pair of tuxedo cats and a calico. Shoo! I shout, but the cats remain unperturbed, tails swishing. Damn it, get out of here! I move them gently away with my leg, but they move back into place. I try to step over them, but they stand in their hind legs and bat at my pants, claws extending to try and grab at my attire. I curse under my breath, jumping off the side of the patio instead to circumvent the stubborn felines. They're gone once I return home, thank God. Four days into the job, and I feel something crunch under my car as I pull into the driveway. My blood runs cold in my veins, and I yank the key out of the ignition. I leap out of the car, heart racing in my chest. Oh God, oh God, no, 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 no. I shut the door when I left, right? I must have. There's no way I couldn't have. I'd never be that careless, especially now. I run behind the car to investigate, biting my tongue to stop myself from cursing. It's not Bestie. Thank God. It's the damn fat ginger tabby she's been talking to. Rather, it was the ginger tabby. I cover my mouth with a hand and avert my gaze from the thing's crushed corpse. Great. I'm gonna have to clean the damn thing up. Now! The last thing I need is for my neighbors to see a dead cat in my driveway and start asking questions. I die of embarrassment. I don't need to have to explain anything to them, especially considering I'm supposed to be taking care of a cat. It wouldn't be a good look. I hurry inside the house and Bestie clings to my ankles, digging her claws past the fabric of my pants. I jump in a fright, wincing in pain. I manage to shake her free and she darts into another room. Christ, I think. Just make my day worse, why don't you? I grab a pair of thick gloves from my closet and a shovel from the garage. I figure burying it's the best option. If it were much smaller, like that kitten, I'd just toss it in the garbage. But from the looks of it, the thing was pretty well fed. I open the front door and walk toward the back of my car. I stop in my tracks, nearly dropping the shovel. The cats are back. There's at least ten of them now, all surrounding the ginger cat's corpse. Most of them are sitting down, heads lowered. A few prod the dead body with their little noses, while others nudge it with a paw. Once I arrive on the scene, however, they all turn to look at me, slitted eyes burning into my body. They start hissing, a few getting to their feet and stalking toward me. Their backs raise and their ears flatten, claws sliding out from their paws as they continue their approach. My fingers tighten around the handle of the shovel, knuckles whitening with the strength of my grip. Ah, oh, son of a... I take a step back, then another, eyes wide and transfixed on the furious gathering of felines. Without another word, I bolt back into the house, slamming the door shut behind me. Bestie's there to greet me, sitting primly in my recliner with her paws folded beneath her. Her eyes, giant and unblinking, meet my own, and she stares at me. She keeps staring at me, staring like she wants me to say something to her. But I don't. I can't. I fill up her bowl and retreat into my room. The dead body can wait. I'm not going back outside until those things are good and gone.
Five days into the job, and the cats aren't gone. They've only grown in number. I peer out the window and find them sitting there still, keeping their angry vigil over their fallen companion. By now the corpse has started to attract flies, and the pooled blood beneath its body is brown and dried on the pavement. They notice my staring and they glare, hissing and yowling. I pull the shade down, but it does nothing to quell their rage. If anything, I think they get louder. One thuds against the door and starts to claw, little razor-sharp nails scraping against the painted wood. Another thud. Another scratch. Another thud. Yowling. Hissing. I call in sick. Six days into the job, and I haven't slept a minute since the day before. I can't say I didn't try, because I did. I really did. But the cats outside are screaming and clawing the door, and they just won't stop. I don't know how they haven't gotten tired or gotten a neighbor's attention, and I don't know what the hell to do. My head throbs at the nonstop sound, and my brain screams for some kind of release. I sit up in bed and my ankle starts hurting. I find the source of the issue rather quickly. It's the scratch Bestie gave me yesterday. The broken skin raised in pink. Great, I whisper, and leave my room to get something for it. When I open the door to do so, however, Bestie's waiting for me, sitting patiently and tail wriggling. Her big turquoise eyes blink up at me glittering and calm even under the discordant hisses and yowls from her kin outside. A growl rumbles in her throat once I notice that, betraying the sereneness of her posture. I push past her, quickly grabbing some band-aids from the bathroom and sitting on the recliner to apply them. I grit my teeth as I peel off the small film covering the adhesive end, the sound of cats clawing at the front door outside ringing endlessly in my ears. I wince, pressing the bandages over the pink scratch. I pray it's not infected. I have no idea what Bestie might be carrying. As I'm smoothing the band-aids into place, Bestie yowls, leaping from the carpet and onto my chest. She claws at me, paws slamming swiftly against my cheeks, breaking open the skin with whip-quick lashes. I shriek, throwing her off me with a pained yowl of my own. She collides paws first to the ground and runs away. I don't care to find out wherever she's run off to. I reach up, clutching my face with my hand. Immediately my fingers come away wet and red, and I scramble to grab my phone from the table beside me. I smear the screen with my blood, but I don't care. I type through the redness, texting my neighbor in a panic. Bestie's trying to kill me, I text her, heart thudding against my ribcage. I spot her across the room standing by the door, turquoise eyes locked onto my trembling face. All around her I hear the yowling and the hissing of the cats behind the entryway. She's got friends outside and she's trying to kill me or drive me insane or something and you gotta tell me what to do. She texts me back almost immediately, the vibrating of my phone in my bloodied hands making me jump. Basty. My fingers tap anxiously against the keyboard. Basti? Short for Bastet, she explains. The goddess of cats. My heart beats against my fingertips, eyes following the spotted silver feline as she leaps onto the table beside the front door. Basti takes care of her own, she texts me, and the hissing outside gets even louder. And you obviously haven't. Basti presses a paw onto the handle and the lock clicks. Immediately, the cats on the other side push open the door, the once barely muffled hissing now even louder than the panicked hammering of my heart. They stream into my home, dozens of them, a terrible and multicolored mass of fur and claws and fangs. I manage to scream once before I'm overwhelmed.
That was Ariana Ferrante's Like Hurting Cats, is read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast, since 2014. She has narrated stories for various other podcasts, including Knife Point Horror and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to read for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. You can contact Amy through her website, thebloodlust.net. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs. But it's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini. With original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invite the terror in with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.